This episode of my podcast is a follow-on to the previous one, where I covered the motivation behind layoffs at Google and suggested how employee ownership can help prevent such layoffs. In this episode, I take a deductive approach to reaching my recommendation of Google becoming employee-owned. Check the show notes for links to full text as well as Twitter thread version of both podcasts. Now let's jump in. Let's begin from the beginning. Google's 2004 IPO. It was the time when Don't Be Evil actually worked. Yes, Don't Be Evil. The frequently used, often abused, always memed motto that made Google different. It was the source for everything that led to Google creating a special bond with its employees. I was one of those employees. Three times, in fact. In the 2004 letter, aptly titled An Owner's Manual, the founders were very intentional about how they would operate Google. The phrase long-term appears 36 times in this letter. It is defined as three to five years for early results on key efforts. The founders outline plans to apply a world-positive lens even when financial returns are unclear. They mention their unabashedness towards making high-risk, high-reward bets. They refuse to follow the norms of providing forward-looking guidance and they introduced the dual-class structure, giving them outsized control of the fate of Google. The message to investors, executives, and employees was loud and clear. Google was going to be a risk-taking, benevolent dictatorship with a long-time horizon for building shareholder wealth. Buyer, beware. Larry, Sergey, and Eric perfectly aligned their own incentives with shareholders and employees. They took a token $1 salary and focused on growing the worth of their existing ownership in Google. There could not have been a more unconventional way to run a capitalistic organization. Yet Google did it, successfully. Anyone who bought into the Google story was rewarded phenomenally over the next several decades. Now Google's corporate structure is lagging behind and proving ineffective. I guess OpenAI is leading on this front too. However, no harm in playing catch-up. The road to evil is paved with good intentions. The Google founders have gone to great lengths to retain the ability to run the company without any outside influence on strategic decisions. At the time of the IPO in 2004, they applied a dual-class structure that gave 61.4% of voting power to insiders. In 2014, they doubled down by creating a non-voting class of stock, mostly to prevent dilution of control from stock issued for acquisitions and stock-based compensation. However, the settlement for a class action lawsuit against this split requires the founders to divest their voting stock whenever they sell their non-voting stock. So their share of control has continued to decline as shown in the chart included in the accompanying blog post. To stem this downward trajectory, in July 2021, the board approved the repurchase plan to also cover voting class A shares. This will help the founders retain greater voting control. The independence and control by Larry, Sergey, and Eric was likely crucial towards Google's phenomenal success when they were involved in running the company. Now these owners with controlling interests are in absentia. The named executives running the company don't have such level of control. Neither do they have the type of incentives created by a $1 salary, a non-trivial ownership, and an unbounded timeline. Instead, the executives need to prove themselves every two years. This is a stock deviation from the long, long term as defined in the founder's letter. So what can be done to recalibrate the timeline for exec incentives? 
Let's first rule out the most commonly suggested solution, which is similar to creating throats to choke. A carrot doesn't work when used to hit someone with it like a stick. Many have called for cuts to compensation or other such reprimands for executives. I'm not a fan of punitive solutions because they usually apply post facto when it is too late, or it may induce risk aversion ex ante, which is detrimental to tech innovation. I'd even go to the extent of suggesting that both should consider giving executives the maximum amount of equity compensation from the start of their job. The amount of incentives should come from the stock price appreciation resulting from their actions instead of bonuses. This equity compensation should have lock-in periods of six years or more, limits on pace of equity sales, and clawback provisions if the executive resigns or is terminated for a valid reason. The objective should be to make executives focus on the long term rather than just maximizing their bonuses. In addition to executive compensation, I also have a contrarian perspective on cost efficiency and employee incentives. Google does not need to build for efficiency. This may sound provocative, so humor me if you will. Google has cornered the most valuable resource in the tech industry, top talent. Many employees stay at Google for so long because of the nimbleness of always finding a role that best aligns with their aspirations and life stage. Google enabled this by perfecting the art of hiring cognitively smart generalists, providing internal mobility, and allowing and allocating capital across a broad portfolio of efforts. This has, resulted, this has resulted in creation of amazing products and helped maintain a bench strength of brilliant employees with crucial institutional knowledge. It is almost impossible to clearly project the contribution margin of such efforts in a financial model. Many of these efforts will obviously look bad from the perspective of investors, always looking for a clear line of sight from costs to profits. I believe that optimizing for efficiency would have led to missed opportunities for creating shareholder wealth. The real problem lies in how Google is failing to capture the benefits from this inefficiency. The Google of 2023, same big calories without any of the great taste. Google's promotion centric culture is well known. Promotions offer access to more visible projects and the primary means of increasing total compensation consisting of larger equity awards. In theory, this award system aligns well with the interest of shareholders. However, the model is played with skewed incentives and high agency cost. The correlation between activities that lead to promotion and those that are in the best interest of the company is believed to have weakened. Promotions across Google are also inadequately calibrated, leading to a promotion process that is now based on calculated narratives and salesmanship rather than value maximizing activities. The instant liquidity of Google stock makes equity compensation effectively equivalent to cash limiting its ability to align incentives with those of shareholders. There is more incentive to maximize the number of shares awarded than to focus on increasing the value of each awarded share. Promotions provide a clearer path to the former, while the latter is perceived to be beyond the control of any individual. These agency costs have resulted in a poor rate of capturing benefits from Google's deliberate inefficiencies, making them the top target of Google's investors. And this all ties back to our original question of what Google employees can do about layoffs. It's relevant, so keep reading. Why an employee on Google is the right solution. It comes down to aligning the incentives along with shared expectations. 
Artifacts such as the 2004 owner's manual provide a baseline for shared expectations on principles such as manual, mutual welfare, social positivity, risk return tolerance, and time periods for value creation. A corporate structure rooted in employee ownership provides the ongoing balance to preserve this baseline. Employee ownership forces a sense of mutualism among all key stakeholders, including executives, the board, employees, and investors. It links employees' wealth into the business for a longer term, aligning them with investors' interests. Additionally, it gives employees influence over boards and executives to prevent them from being swayed by short-term-oriented investors. It generates a healthy tension between employee owners and well-meaning outside investors. Imagine if a substantial portion of the wealth of all VPs was locked into Google. How would their decision-making change? What would be their attitude towards a promotion process driven by salesmanship? What would be their stance towards layoffs decoupled from the growth narrative? How would they prioritize fixing the buildup and cultural baggage or the need for ongoing performance management? What if employees had their wealth tied to Google for an extended period of time? Would they, come, would they continue to make decisions based on their own self-interest? Would their peers accept actions driven by individual self-interest? How many would still complain about the elimination of a $500 holiday gift? I truly believe that all Google employees, executives, board members, and investors are well-intentioned individuals. However, incentives do play a role in shaping the thousands of micro-decisions people make unconsciously. Employee ownership shifts the foundation of these micro-decisions. But with all the Google stock compensation, isn't Google already employee-owned? The two most important dimensions of employee ownership are, one, sharing controlling interest with employees, two, sharing economic interest with employees. Google's current system of compensating employees and executives with stock does not meet these standards. The stock given has no voting power and its instant liquidity reduces the appeal of value accretion over a long period of time. The reward structure for both executives and employees are anchored in a two to three year time frame. With Google's profitability, current assets, and top of the industry pay scale, it has everything it needs to adopt a more formal employee ownership structure. There are three common types of employee ownership structures in the US, worker cooperatives, employee stock ownership plans, and employee ownership trusts. Google may need to create a unique plan that fits their needs. For this discussion, I will assume that Google will design some kind of custodian account to hold stock on behalf of each individual employee. I'll refer to this as an EO account from this point forward. Following are a few directional thoughts on how Google can share more broad-based control and economic interest. One, 50% or more of equity compensation for named executives and director and above should be required to be held in the EO account. Two. L7 or lower employees should have the option to choose how much of the equity compensation to put in the EO account. If the EO account is structured as a tax advantaged account, it can encourage employee participation. Otherwise, Google can offer a bonus for EO account contributions. Three, equity compensation in the EO account should be in the form of voting class A stock instead of non-voting class C stock. Whenever class B, four, whenever class B stock is available for sale, the EO account should have the option, opportunity to buy by selling Class A stocks. Five, holdings in the EO account should have a minimum lock-in period of six plus years and executives should have limits on withdrawal rates over time. The above points are just starting guide for how Google can increase employee ownership. 
This kind of ownership will give employees more control over important decisions like layoffs and make them better aligned with the goals of the company's shareholders. I'm confident that Google has many talented individuals who can perfect this plan. Currently, my focus is on helping small and medium businesses adopt employee ownership. So come and help us build the easy button for employee ownership. The employee ownership model has proven to be successful across geographies, time periods, and industry verticals. There is a strong latent demand from 3 million business owners who are over 55 and struggle to sell their profitable businesses. Employee ownership provides these owners a way to cash out while also offering wealth building opportunities to employees. However, the adoption of employee ownership is hindered by a lack of awareness among advisors and the need for a bespoke consulting model for implementation. This leads to friction, unpredictability, lack of transparency, and high costs for business owners to implement employee ownership. My co-founder Sonali Kothari and I are working to make employee ownership more accessible by developing SaaS and Copilot tools. We will bring the SMB, MA, and advisor communities together. Our closest proxies are TurboTax, AngelList, and Carta. If this resonates with you, please get in touch with us by completing the form in the show notes to help us create an easy button for employee ownership. We respond to each and every message. If you'd like to know more about employee ownership, the book Create Amazing provides a good primer on employee ownership. The author Greg Graves was the CEO of 100% owned Burns McDonald Engineering. The book is available in various formats, including as an audiobook at public libraries in the Bay Area. I've included links in the show notes for the audiobook at the Mountain View Library, the Palo Alto Library, and the Santa Clara Library. The concept of employee ownership of companies has existed for many centuries. Even today, employee ownership is getting strong support from federal and state governments. Link to some of the recent updates from the federal and state government are included in the show notes. You may even be doing business with companies that are employee-owned without realizing it. We have a few familiar logos as part of the accompanying blog post, so do check, check those out. You might recognize those logos without knowing that they are 100% employee-owned. Thank you for listening.